I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 26. At last, Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. And so firm was his resolve that he would not be dissuaded by brothers and sisters telling him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he will suffer in this city. Uh, But Paul, he knows that. Not only has the Holy Spirit led him here, the Spirit also impressed upon him the bonds and the afflictions that will lie ahead. But before any turmoil erupts from Paul's arrival in the city, there is a reunion with the church in Jerusalem that he experiences. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 15. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came up with us, taking us to Manasin of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took them in, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. This is God's word. Leaving the city of Caesarea, Paul and his traveling companions, they head southeast toward Jerusalem. Uh, This being more than a one-day journey on foot, some of the Christians from Caesarea, they accompany them on their journey southward, and they go as far as the residence of a disciple named Manasin. And it is at this man's house that this sizable group that's with Paul finds lodging for the evening. It seems that Luke, the writer of Acts, makes a point to mention his name because Manasin became a believer in the earlier days of the church. He is a disciple, verse 16, of long standing. When Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he does receive a warm reception. It's been about eight years since Paul was last in the city. In the meantime, churches have sprung up in multiple places across the Roman Empire, and the church in Jerusalem has grown to include thousands more than it did before Paul was last there. So Paul doesn't waste any time visiting with the leadership. Verse 18, the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. James here, 
is the physical half-brother of Jesus who wrote the epistle of James in the New Testament. Uh, He's looked to as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And by this point, the church had grown to include probably over 10,000 members. Mega church here in Jerusalem. Uh, This number of believers needed many shepherds, as you can imagine. Uh, Some estimate that there could have been up to 70 elders alongside of James leading the church. Whatever that precise number was, Paul addresses a large audience composed of the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. And as he stands before his brothers in verse 19, it says he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So these are stories, a lot of stories of the powerful and the transforming work of Jesus in the lives of those who called upon his name. Stories of new churches and towns and cities in various regions of churches replicating themselves to form new churches. The kingdom of darkness is trembling as the blazing light of the kingdom of God sweeps westward. And Paul, he was the hand-picked leader of this charge. As Jesus had said about him all those years before at his baptism, at his conversion, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. Paul does not neglect in his retelling of these events of what the Lord's been doing. He does not neglect to acknowledge that he is merely an instrument. He's a tool with which God works. He did not relate to the elders the things that he had done. He related, verse 19, one by one the things which God had done. Very few people in the history of of Christendom can justly claim to have expended as much energy and effort in service to God and in service to others as the Apostle Paul. Yet he always acknowledged that it was the strength of God working through him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Paul writes, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. The more that you're used of the Lord, the more you come to realize that it is only God's undeserved and unearned blessing of strength that enables you. There are those who are frequently boasting about how much they do for God. And this is often in the form of an indirect reminder to others about how involved they are with their church or in a certain area of service. But in reality, these are probably the least effective in God's economy. Uh, Their feverish activity tends to be much more smoke than fire. Look to the one who does not consider he or she is much used of the Lord, and you have a better chance of finding a person who is actually being used of the Lord. With great spiritual usefulness comes great humility. And that's what we consistently find in Paul. A humility that he even models before these elders in Jerusalem, which we're going to see. So as we look at this passage together, we will observe three, three useful principles. First of all, what cannot change? 
Secondly, what really matters? And thirdly, what is to be done? What cannot change? What really matters? And what is to be done? So what cannot change? What cannot change? Paul's audience, they're pleased with what they hear. Verse 20, they begin glorifying God. These Jewish believers truly rejoiced over what the Lord has done through Paul's ministry among the non-Jews, that is, the Gentiles. They did not deny that God was truly at work. They did not deny that God was truly using Paul to bring many Gentiles into the kingdom, but they did have some concerns. And these concerns, they did not appear suddenly. They have been addressed in, in different ways by Luke, the writer, at various points in this whole narrative that's the book of Acts. But in Paul's long absence from Jerusalem, rumors have been flying and accusations have mounted. Before we get into looking at the specific complaints against Paul, it will be helpful to consider the social climate of Jerusalem when he showed up there in 57 AD. Tensions between the, the Jewish people and their occupiers, that is the Roman military, they were especially high. There had always been certain zealots who vocally and even at times violently opposed Rome's rule, but the ranks of the discontent were growing. One commentator writes, Paul arrived in Jerusalem during very turbulent times. There had been a string of mediocre to poor governors in Judea who had merely exacerbated the problems that were already festering. We understand the frustration created by leaders who make poor decisions and the frustration created by those who seem to not care about the common man in their decision-making process. These corrupt leaders that were appointed by Rome, they sought to discourage and even disparage the Jews' dedication to their own nation and religion and temple. And as always happened when people, uh, this always happens, when people feel their culture and their way of life is threatened, the Jews push back. We understand that. And the events of this time, they were all leading up to the Jewish war with Rome that was only a little over a decade away. The war that the, the Jews would lose in 70 AD, and they would see their temple once again raised to the ground. And it is into, it is into this charged political climate that Paul enters. The Jews who had become believers in Jesus in recent years, they were fiercely devoted to observing the law. It was a way to preserve their cultural identity when that cultural identity is being threatened. They took great offense at the Roman government's overreach into their lives. Paul, as a Jewish man, whose primary outreach is to Gentiles, to non-Jews, he walks right into the middle of this pot that is about to reach a boiling point. When Paul finished recounting the works of God among the Gentiles, a spokesman, probably James, he steps forward and says in verse 20, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believed, and they are all zealous for the law. This text today, it'll take a little unpacking, so bear with me. Before I read any further, 
I want you to hear who these people are that are being referred to, those who are bringing these concerns. These are Jews who have believed in the Lord Jesus for salvation. They are brothers. They are Christians. Again, verse 20. Thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And there's another detail about them. They're all zealous for the law. I think you understand generally what's meant by the law. The word in Hebrew for law is Torah. Torah. It literally means teaching. The teaching. So here, law, the way it's being used, refers to the law of Moses. That is, everything the Lord through Moses in the first five books of the Old Testament taught the Israelites to observe the Torah, the teaching. So this includes the moral teachings, like the Ten Commandments. It includes the civil instructions, like court proceedings and tax laws, as well as the ceremonial teachings, like sacrifices, like what to eat, when one was considered clean or unclean. There are 613 total laws in the Law of Moses, specifically given to the Israelites. And this is generally what is meant by the law. For these believers to be zealous for the law means that they were devoted to observing all the teaching that was laid out in the Old Testament. And here's what you need to keep in mind. As Jews to whom the law was given, they were observing the law as a way to honor God, not as a way of obtaining salvation. And we know this is the case because if they were observing the law as a way to be saved, James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, would have condemned their thinking. We know that because he himself said back in Acts chapter 15, verse 11, we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as the Gentiles also. Grace is the undeserved favor of God received by faith alone in Jesus Christ. James affirmed that. These believing Jews had their whole lives observed the law. God's law has always been good, and it did not cease to be good even after they became Christians. Now that they have believed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah promised by their Old Testament, they're still keeping the law. But their mindset has completely changed. That Their heart has shifted. The focus of their heart is different. They did not keep the law because they thought it would earn them favor with God. They now knew, they now understood that it could not. That is why they trusted Jesus to save them from their sins. They understood the law cannot save anyone. As believers, they observed the law as a way to praise God and to express their devotion to Him. And so they kept the Sabbath. They celebrated the Jewish feast. They, they followed the dietary restrictions. They took the ritual vows. And we know that even Paul himself did these things from time to time. Remember back in Acts 18, Paul took a Nazarite vow. It's out of the Old Testament. Paul wanted to get back to Jerusalem in time to do what? To celebrate the Passover. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.20, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, though not being myself, under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. 
What does he mean by all that? Well, he means that he observed the law when he was around people who observed the law so that he would not unnecessarily offend anyone. Paul's goal was not to convince Jews to stop being Jews. Paul's goal was to convince Jews and Gentiles to trust in Jesus Christ. There are Christians, brothers and sisters, who have different convictions than you do. There are those brothers and sisters who have different scruples than you, different opinions about when to worship, how to worship, how much you should be reading your Bible, how and when you should be praying. You and I, we run across other Christians who have strong opinions on how to dress, on, on what to do with their free time, opinions on what to eat or what not to eat. If you haven't noticed, there are areas in which we each are convinced of certain things that we can or cannot do, should or should not do. And when we see these issues arise, if we're not careful, when it comes to how we express our personal convictions, conflict is near. So rather than trying to adjust other brothers and sisters to conform to our expectations and our convictions, you and I should each take the advice of Paul in Romans 14, verses 12 through 13. And remember, and this is what Paul writes, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. This is what Paul taught. And as we'll see, this is what he modeled. So here then is the first principle that we learn from this passage. Sincere Christians can differ on how they choose to honor God, so long as they do not differ on how one is saved. Let me say that again. Sincere Christians can differ on how they choose to honor God, so long as they do not differ on how one is saved. This is what cannot change. The way of salvation, faith in Jesus Christ, that's non-negotiable. The expression of that faith, that will vary from group to group from church to church, from person to person even. How one chooses to honor God in their life is subject to change. What cannot change is the focus of your faith. So secondly, let's consider what really matters. What really matters? We saw what cannot change now, what really matters? In the second part of verse 21, we read about the accusation that some are making against Paul. These new Jewish converts who are zealous for the law, it says, have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. The charges brought against Paul are false. And before we look at why they're not true, let me just say this demonstrates the dangers of believing accusations. There were those, Paul addresses them specifically in the book of Galatians, there were those who were not believers yet posed as Christians. And they had followed Paul around, arriving in places after he left, coming into the churches. They were Jews who insisted that everyone, including Gentiles, must be circumcised and must observe the law of Moses. And Paul rightly and roundly condemned their teaching as a false gospel. 
They were adding works onto faith in Jesus. Apparently, these men, who are often referred to as Judaizers, if you've heard that term, or others that were like them, they had been making these accusations about Paul. And what they said was the source of this false information that spread all the way to the church in Jerusalem. When you accuse someone of something false, you can do tremendous damage to their reputation. You also, as in the case with Paul's accusers, are liable to lead others astray because they are now believing lies, even if it is out of ignorance on their part. Never share information about another person that you have not verified. And even if you have verified it, that does not necessarily mean that you should share it. When you repeat something you've heard about someone else, what crosses the line and makes it gossip is one of two things. One of two things that make repeating information gossip. First of all, intent. Intent. If you are sharing something about someone else in order to build yourself up while tearing that person down, it is gossip. What's your intent? Secondly, the type of information that you share determines whether or not what you say is gossip. The type of information. If your words focus on the faults or failings of others, or you reveal embarrassing or damaging details without permission to do so, even if you do not mean harm, it is gossip. Intent, the type of information, determine whether or not what you share about somebody else is gossip. Words are powerful. Accusations through gossip are powerfully destructive. This is why Romans chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, lists gossip and slander alongside sins such as greed, murder, and hating God. God takes slander and gossip very seriously. Let's consider these false charges that have been leveled against Paul. Really, it's one charge with two examples. It was said, verse 21, that Paul was teaching all the Jews who lived among the Gentiles to abandon Moses. So note, the issue did not have anything to do with what Paul taught the Gentiles. The issue was with what Paul was supposedly teaching the Jews. This phrase, abandon Moses, refers to the law of Moses, those 613 teachings given specifically to the Israelites that I mentioned earlier. So here's the question. Was Paul teaching Jewish people who became followers of Jesus to stop observing the law of Moses? No, he was not. The only thing that Paul ever condemned regarding the law was when Jewish believers observed it as a means of earning or maintaining salvation. The law, what does it do? It shows you, it shows me how incapable we are of pleasing God. As Romans 3.20 states, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. What Paul condemned was those who tried to justify themselves before God by keeping the law. And this is what Paul meant by his rhetorical question in Galatians 3, verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? The obvious answer, you received the Spirit by hearing with faith. You were saved by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. He is the one who perfectly kept the law 
Jesus is the one only who could die for lawbreakers because he never broke the law, because he was the Son of God. Paul goes on in verse 3 of Galatians 2. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The answer, no. If you began by faith in Jesus Christ and by receiving the Holy Spirit at that moment, you must continue in the same way. By faith in Jesus Christ through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is by faith from first to last. The two examples given by Paul's accusers of this abandoning of the law that he supposedly taught are, first of all, he was telling them not to circumcise their children and, secondly, not to walk according to the customs. Circumcision, if you recall, is the physical sign that identifies a Jewish male as Jewish. God commanded the practice to Abraham, who was the first Hebrew man, the first Jewish man, and the practice up until this day is observed by Jewish people. It's still an identifying mark. Paul never taught Jewish believers not to circumcise their children. In fact, if you remember back in Acts 16, he did what? He himself circumcised a teenage Timothy. So how did this rumor arise? Well, though Paul did not teach against circumcision in Jewish communities, he did teach against circumcision for Gentiles. There's no need for a Gentile, a non-Jew, to undergo the practice. And you're saying, whew. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you circumcised as a baby? Well and good. Stay that way. As a Gentile, however, there's no need to undergo a practice that has no relevance for you. The practice of circumcision does not make a spiritual difference. That's Paul's point. And because Paul taught circumcision was unnecessary for Gentiles, it was rumored, falsely, that he forbade Jews to circumcise their children as well. Are you with me? The second example of Paul, supposedly abandoning the law, was that he taught Jews not to walk according to the customs. The customs, of course, refer to all those teachings that were specifically given by God to Israel. We know by now, I hope, that Paul did not teach abandoning such things. He only rejected the notion that keeping any custom or tradition is able to save anyone. It does not matter if it's a custom given by God or an expectation laid upon someone by their church. Nothing you do, practice, or observe makes any difference when it comes to your salvation. Anyone who is ever saved is only saved because they believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I trust we see how explaining this could result in someone misunderstanding Paul to teach that Jewish customs or values uh, have, have no value whatsoever. They do have value for the Jew. Just no value when it comes to reconciliation with God. Paul did not require any Jewish believer to observe the law of Moses. But neither did he forbid it. Some Jewish believers, no doubt, they would have come to the conclusion that observing the law was not necessary. They did not feel any conviction 
to do so as a way to honor God. Romans 14, 5. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. You can extrapolate that principle out to a lot of things. It's easy to see how the rumors spread and facts got misrepresented to the effect that Paul was teaching all the Jews he encountered on his travels to abandon the law. We understand how this happened. But I want you to keep in mind that none of these misunderstandings centered around God's moral law. God's moral law, that which expresses the very character, the very heart of God, was never in question. God's moral law is expressed in the Ten Commandments, and it's summarized by the law of love. This is what Paul writes in Romans 13, 8-10. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul and James, they both agree that every Christian... Jew or Gentile, is called and expected to live a morally upright life. That was never in question. God's moral law is a reflection of His loving character. To love others as God loves them is to obey God's moral law. On this matter, there is no disagreement. The disagreement again, simply lied with the particular Jewish cultural practices as taught in the law of Moses. And so the second principle that we learn from this passage is this. The expectation God places upon every Christian is to love as he or she has been loved. The expectation that God places on every Christian is to love as he or she has been loved. That's what really matters. The only reason that you can live according to the law of love is because God first loved you. How did God show you his love? 1 John 4, 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So don't miss this. Yes, on one hand, God demonstrated his love to you by sending Jesus to die for you, John 3.16. That takes care of the sin problem. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for those sins that separate you from God. But it doesn't end there. God also, as I just read in 1 John 4.9, God also sent Jesus that you might have life through faith in him. Jesus lived the life that you could not live so that through his death and resurrection, you can live the life God intends for you to live. And that life is a life of love. Because God so greatly demonstrated his love to you by sending Jesus to die for you, you are motivated to love others. Why do I love others? Because God loves me, and he showed that love to me in Christ. Because God has so greatly demonstrated his love to you by sending Jesus to live through you, you are empowered to love others. So whether you choose to honor God by observing the customs of Moses or whether you honor him some other way, what really matters 
is that you love as you have been loved. What cannot change? A focus on Jesus. What really matters? Love like God loves. Love like God loves. Thirdly, what is to be done? What is to be done? That's what James asked in verse 22. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. James is concerned that all the Jewish believers who observe the law will be offended when they hear that Paul is in town. Based on the lies that have spread, they will not take kindly to Paul's presence. But James, like Paul, desires unity. And so he presents Paul with a way to allay fears and to put to rest the idea that Paul does not care about the law. James has a plan. And he proposes that Paul join four men who have already taken an Old Testament vow. And if Paul carries through with the suggestion, surely it will demonstrate that he himself is not opposed to the law. But before we look closer at James' suggestion, look at verse 25. Verse 25. Here, James reiterates, he says again, the requirements for Gentile converts. This goes all the way back to Acts chapter 15. He references that letter that Paul and Barnabas took with them on their second missionary journey. And as we saw, when we considered the reasons for these specific requirements for Gentiles, we came to the conclusion that each of these prohibitions, these four prohibitions for Gentiles, each of these, if we take them together, meat sacrificed to idols, blood, what is strangled, and fornication, if we take them together, all are related to idol worship that took place in pagan temples. In order to steer clear of these things, a Gentile convert needed to avoid the feast at idols' temples where blood from strangled sacrifices was consumed by the worshipers along with them engaging in forbidden sexual practices. Steer clear of that stuff. That was the requirement for Gentiles. And so this reminder of verse 25 of a decision already made confirms that the issue with Paul's supposed teaching has nothing to do with his ministry to the Gentiles. James and the Jerusalem brethren, they're concerned about his ministry to the Jews. And Paul needs to take this vow in order to show his solidarity with the Jewish people. Now, there are different ideas as to what exactly this vow was. Some commentators, they suggest that it was a Nazarite vow, like the one Paul took previously. The four men that are in question here, they probably are finishing up a Nazarite vow. They're probably at the end of those typically 30 days. I believe, however, it's possible that Paul undergoes a specific ritual of purification that was required of Jews who arrived back in Israel from a foreign, therefore unclean, land. Any land beside Israel was considered unclean. And so when a Jew got back to the mother country, to the homeland, he had to go through a purification, he or she, purification ritual, to cleanse themselves. In Numbers 19.12, it outlines this ritual for purification. It takes seven days which makes sense for the time frame that Paul is dealing with. Verse 24, 
And our text says, take them along and purify yourself together with them. So Paul is to join these four other men who have previously taken vows themselves. Their time under their vows is coming to an end, and Paul can join them for the conclusion with his own purification ritual. Stay with me here. Not only would Paul join these men, but it's also suggested that he would pay their expenses. Numbers chapter 6. It describes the sacrifices offered at the end of a Nazarite vow, what these four men were probably under. And it includes for each one of the four men, listen, a male lamb, a female lamb, and a ram. That's a lamb, a lamb, and a ram for each of those men. That's a huge expense for Paul to assume. Just imagine if you were buying that livestock for yourself. But paying their expenses would add credibility to his claim. As James, James confirms, verse 24, then everyone will know there's nothing to what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also conform, keeping the law. So it's one thing for Paul to go through the inconvenience of keeping a purification vow for seven days. It's a whole other level of relating to those who are under the law by being willing to pay such exorbitant expenses. Again, animals sold for sacrifices at the temple were not cheap. An important part of offering a sacrifice was that it cost the worshiper something. It was certainly costing Paul something to pay the expenses of these four men, as well as for himself. But he did so willingly, as we read in verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, he went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. There is no escaping the truth of the words of Jesus. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul's heart was in heaven. Therefore, he did not hesitate to give away money on earth. Paul was not a man with means. He earned a little here and there with his, his trade, probably leatherworking. And otherwise, he was supported by gifts from other Christians. Money was simply, for Paul, a means to an end. It supplied his needs so that he could continue to do ministry and so he could use it to bless others. You can hide a lot from people, but, but opening up your financial transactions for the world to see will reveal your priorities. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the third principle, the final principle that we observe is this. There is a cost involved when you meet others where they are at. There is a cost involved when you meet others where they are at. This is what is to be done. You have a ministry. You have a ministry. Your ministry in some form or fashion within the circumstances that God has arranged for you means getting involved in the lives of others. It's what ministry is. The word means service. Who are you serving? Other people. 
How else are you going to demonstrate the love of Christ unless you're involved in other people's lives? Ministry is messy because people are messy and people are ministry. And sometimes in your ministry, you will be called to do what otherwise you would not see as necessary, even as Paul was called to take a purification vow. What is to be done? What is to be done is that you sacrifice in order to meet others where they are. To Paul, it made no difference whether he was conforming to the law among the Jews or simply living by the law of love among the Gentiles. Paul did not live for himself, he lived for Jesus. And when you're focused on that which Jesus is focused on, you will be willing to lay aside your preferences. You will be willing, when the moment calls for it, to lay aside what you want to do or even where you want to be. You do so because your witness matters and because people are watching. So whether you think it's necessary or unnecessary, in those moments, that's beside the point. You love others as yourself, which means that you put their interests above your own. Of course, the only reason that you can do this, the only reason that you even desire to do this, is because that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for you. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Because Jesus gave his life for you, you put others' lives before your own. That is what is to be done. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word that's challenging to each of us this morning. We understand in our heads that it's more blessed to give than to receive, but so often we flip that around. Lord, we want to be givers. We want to give our lives away. Not because that's how we earn our way to heaven. We know that it's not, Lord, we can't earn our way to heaven, but because Jesus has paid a price for us that we could not pay. Therefore, help us to glorify you in our bodies by serving others, by laying aside our preferences when called to, by living by the law of love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.